Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 45, Puffin Time. So today we are revisiting a family we have met a couple of times. The Orcs, the Alcids, or as I like to think of them, the Flying Penguins of the North. Except for the one that can't fly. But it's extinct, so it doesn't count. The Flying Penguins of the North. We met them in episode 21, when we spoke about the Great Orc. We met them again in episode 38, when we spoke about some of their eggs. And we met them again, again, in episode 39, when they were the protagonist, uh, victim? In our story about the Great Egg War. Three classic episodes. Go back and listen to them if you haven't already. In fact, just listen to the whole back catalogue again. But even so, I feel we have not done the family justice, and they've got to be my favourite ocean-going group of birds. So let's do it. Let's talk puffins. Bird of the Week Maybe we should begin with a description of the orc family as told by the person who understood them best, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is said to have described orcs as squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned with wide mouths and slant eyes. Oh, 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 wait a second, I'm getting mixed up between the orcs of Middle-earth and the orcs that inhabit our Earth. Easy mistake, they are similar, but there is a rule of thumb to keep it straight. One is a mythical creature created by torturing elves with black magic. The other are a family of birds that live in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, also their names are spelt different. Tolkien's orcs are O-R-C, whereas ours are A-U-K. So while they're homophones, they share literally nothing else in common. The orcs we're interested in are birds in the family Alcidae. You know, I'm pretty pretty sure that's, um, that's how you say it. The family Alcidae. And aside from orcs, they go by many names. Puffins, murs, guillemots, orklets, alcids. For simplicity, I will refer to the family in the broad as orcs. Orcs are ocean-going birds of the northern hemisphere. Their closest relatives are gulls and terns. But whereas most gulls and terns are what we call shorebirds, orcs are truly pelagic. Ooh my, that was a fancy word we just used. Pelagic. That is biologist nerd speak for the open ocean. Pelagic animals are those that spend the majority of their time out at sea. Most gulls and terns, although we always see them down at the beach, they usually don't stray far from land. Orcs, though, only return to land to nest. In this sense, their life cycle and behaviour is more akin to albatross, petrels and penguins, the true seafarers. There are 25 living and one recently extinct species in the family, and they are all confined to the northern hemisphere, primarily in the high north, circling the polar regions of the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, with a particular stronghold in the Bering Strait off Alaska. The family can be divided up in a number of different ways, but I think the way that makes the most sense is to think of the orcs as being in one of three groups. We have the Murs and Guillemots, which includes the Great Orc, the Little Orc, and the Razorbill. Then we have the Little Orklets, and finally we have the Puffins. I'll go into a bit more detail about each group in a minute, but superficially at least, orcs do look an awful lot like penguins. And in fact, 
If we were to trace the origin of the word penguin, it would lead us back to the orcs. The scientific name of the now extinct great orc was Penguinus impenis. I mean, you gotta love that. Penguinus impenis. Supposedly, the word penguinus was Latin for plump. And I mean, rude. Yeah, but also fair. Because of the similar appearance between the large, flightless, black and white bird of the north and the large, flightless, black and white birds of the south, the name got applied to the southern penguins and there it has stayed. But we're getting off track. We have episodes devoted to both the great orc and the penguin, so let's move on. Superficially, orcs do look like penguins. In general, they are a good deal smaller. The biggest orcs are about the same size as the smallest penguins, and like the penguins, they possess mainly white bellies, black backs, and hunt for their prey in underwater pursuit. As already mentioned, they spend the majority of their life out at sea, and only come to land to nest. So at least on the surface, their appearance and behaviour, yeah, they're similar. But, as is so often the case, the resemblance is only feather deep. Orcs do occupy a similar niche, niche in the environment as penguins, but they come from radically different families, and under the down, they are also quite different. For starters, and this is a big one, orcs can fly. Ignore the great orc, it's extinct. Evolutionarily speaking, the orcs went down an odd path that few birds have followed. When it comes to catching fish when you want to dive into the water, birds have taken two main paths. They either become plunge divers or otherwise engage in underwater pursuit. Plunge diving is fairly self-explanatory. You plunge or you dive, I, you know, I guess that's a bit of a tautology, into the water and quickly grab your prey. Think kingfishers, gannets, petrels. The bird isn't spending a lot of time underwater. It's a smash and grab job. Get in, get out. Then there is underwater pursuit. This is where you stay underwater and chase the fish around for a little while. A lot of birds also do this. Cormorants, loons, grebes, magansas, they're a type of duck, and of course, penguins. Again, there are two ways to be an underwater pursuit hunter. You can be like the penguins and let your wings evolve into flippers for maximum underwater agility and efficiency, or you can tuck your wings into your side streamline your body, and rely on powerful flippers to propel yourself about. Either way, the take-home message is that wings underwater aren't very useful. They cause a lot of drag. Because while they may be aerodynamic up in the air, they aren't hydrodynamic under the waves. Penguins opted to turn their wings into flippers. They chose hydrodynamic and lost the ability of flight. Most other birds opted to keep their wings and just pop them out of the way when they're underwater. And they do that because, well, you know, let's face it, being able to fly is one hell of an advantage. But orcs, yeah, orcs chose a third way. They somehow managed to evolve wings that were good for both swimming and flying. So what are those wings like? Well, they're rather short and rather paddle-like. When an orc goes underwater, they open their wings and fly about as if they were in the sky, and they are quite agile and speedy in the water as a result. You know, not as good as a penguin mind, but you know, hey, yeah, still pretty impressive. Of course, the trade-off they made is that they have what we would call high wing loading. In other words, it means that because they have small, more rounded wings, they have to work a lot harder to get up and stay in the air. Some people describe the flight of orcs as looking rather frantic. They have to beat their little wings mighty fast. They're not graceful gliders like the albatross. 
As a result, they do end up spending more of their time bobbing about on the surface of the water than being up in the sky. There are some other birds that have made a similar life choice, like the diving petrels, which are sometimes even described as being orc-like because of the similar wings and feeding habits they share. But for the most part, orcs are in a league of their own. Maybe now would be a good time to have a quick look at each of the subgroups within the main family and get a bit of an idea of what these birds have got going on. Our first group contains the Meurs, Guillemonts, and the Razorbill. You know, for my money, these are the classic orcs. They look the most like a penguin. This group contains some of the biggest and smallest members of the family. The little merlets get no bigger than about 25 centimetres, while the Razorbill can be about double that size. This group contains the Razorbill and Little Orc, the two species of Myrrh, three species of Guillemont, and seven Merlets, who actually belong to two different genres, but now we're getting quite technical. All of them have similar lifestyles, but the biggest variation comes in their breeding habits, and we will have more to say about that in a minute. In the next subgroup, we have the six Orclets, and again, they are small, plump, and similar to the Merlets in appearance. But whereas the merlets tend to be drab, grey, rather nondescript birds, the orklets are bright black and white and tend to have some sort of fancy ornamentation that marks them out as unique. But even the orklet pales in comparison to the most distinct member of the family, the puffins. And let's face it, everyone loves a puffin. There must be something about their plump, round proportions, their clumsy nature on land, their kind of sad doe eyes, and let's not forget those gorgeous wedge-shaped beaks of orange, yellow, and blue. Of course, we should be careful in our language. The famous multicoloured bills belong to one puffin in particular, the Atlantic puffin. And in fact, there are two other species of puffin that are less well known, the horned puffin and the tufted puffin. All three puffins look similar to each other, but whereas the horned and tufted puffins live in the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic puffin, well, it, um, you know, it lives in the Atlantic Ocean. The other features that mark them out as unique are also embedded in their name. The tufted puffin has two great blonde tufts of hair that sweep back from their eyes over the back of their head. Kind of looks like a Donald Trump-esque swoosh of hair. Meanwhile, the horned puffin doesn't exactly have horns per se but rather they have these strange fleshy spikes that extend off the brow over their eyes. Puffins hunt by diving for their food. They can get to depths of about 30 metres and can stay submerged for around a minute. One of the Atlantic puffins' most famous attributes is their ability to capture and transport multiple fish in their beak. Using backward-facing grooves in their beak and tongue, they can manoeuvre food into a position where they can hold it and keep hunting without having to swallow their prey. And seeing them coming back with a beak full of fish does look rather amusing. Now, I want to move on to some of the attributes that distinguish the orcs from each other a little more, because a few of them are really weird, but a lot of this weirdness comes down to sexually selected for traits. So let's stick with our friend the Atlantic Puffin and that fancy coloured beak of theirs, because you see, that beak is not an all-the-time thing. It's a feature of the breeding season used for mate selection. When the breeding season ends, they shed the outer layer of their beak and it becomes a much drabber thing. They even shed some of the skin from around their eyes. 
During the breeding season, they have a little orange ring that circles their eyes, making them pop a bit more. But once the babies are laid and raised, that's the end of that for another year. There is another more bizarre feature to their beaks, though. As brilliantly bright as they are to us, to other puffins, they are even more so. In recent years, we have discovered that puffin beaks glow brilliantly under ultraviolet light. We have long known that bird vision is not the same as human. Instead of having the boring three-colour receptors that we people have to see blue, green, and red, birds have a fourth one, allowing them to see into the ultraviolet range. The world must be a different-looking place for our avian friends, but they also use this super sense in their courtship and adornments too. The beak is important to puffin courtship, Males and females will flick back and forth across each other's bills as part of their bonding practice, so it only stands to reason that the bright UV light that reflects off their bills has also developed as some means of signifying health and the fitness of an individual. And puffins aren't the only orcs that do this. Another unusual little one is known as the rhinoceros orclet. I know, with a name like that, you would be expecting a big beefy bird, potentially with a giant beak or horn. Well, these are some of the smallest orcs, hence the the let. But they do have a horn. Technically, it's called a Rampothicar. Rampothicar. They have a horn. On the surface, they look like a typical little seabird. Black and white, cute orange flippers and beak. But just like the puffin, when the breeding season comes, the rhinoceros orclet grows these little horns on the side of their beak. Now, they're not overly pronounced. You know, I'm not saying they're the unicorn of birds, but I'm also not saying they aren't. And just like the puffins, these horns glow under ultraviolet light. And we assume, again, this is part of their mating practice. Other orcs take a more traditional road to impress their mates. The whiskered orclet grows ornamental head plumes, great white streaks of feathers that stand out against their black face, almost like a moustache and eyebrows. And the crested orclet has a tuft of little head plumes that sometimes lead people to call them the quail of the sea. So crest feathers and glowing beaks are lovely and all. But the crested orclet takes things to the next level. They attempt to woo their mates, not with feathers and colours or song or dance. Think of any traditional method a bird has of courting its mates. The crested orclet doesn't do it. You, wait, actually, to be, to be fair, they do grow ornamental plumes and have a loud trumpeting call that they use to attract a mate as well. But no, they are one of the few birds that attempts to impress the opposite sex with smell. But you will never guess what these birds smell like. If it was me, I would probably guess something fishy, right? I mean, they have an all-seafood diet. But no, the crested orclets during the breeding season smell like tangerines. The smell is said to emanate from a patch of skin with special feathers on their back. And they seem to be pretty into it. Orclets will bury their beaks into each other's tangerine scent patch to get a good whiff. Biologists have also done a series of experiments that show that the birds can definitely smell the compound and appear to be attracted to it. Other experiments have also shown that the smell may act as a natural pest repellent. Lice and other parasites seem to hate the smell. Potentially, the trait may have evolved and appeared during the breeding season because this is the time when the birds come ashore, so 
it's handy to have something on hand wing, to repel those land-based pests. And they also breed in dense colonies. Sometimes they may only be 30 centimetres from one nest to the next. Over time, this scent that is used to repel the pests may have come to double as a signal of their fitness, and hence something that mates get selected for. And therefore the trait is strengthened in each successive generation. But I I mean, really, who can say? For the most part, orcs seem to be one of the very few truly monogamous birds. You know, funnily enough, there are very few birds who are actually monogamous. There is always a little bit of naughtiness going on behind the scenes, even if all seems well on the surface. Orcs, for the most part, are fairly loyal to their partners. The nesting habits between each of the species do vary somewhat, and in some cases quite dramatically, which might be a little surprising, seeing that they all have similar habits when it comes to breeding otherwise, insofar as they spend most of their life at the ocean and only return to shore to breed. Now, we previously met the common murres during the Egg War episode and saw that they favour nesting on rocky ledges, high on cliffs overlooking the sea, preferably on an island if they can, somewhere safe and predator-free. Nowhere is ever safe from people. The murres of the Pacific and the guillemots of the Atlantic both favour this nesting strategy. Razorbills and the now-extinct Great Orc both nest in a similar way. We saw in our egg episode that the egg of the guillemot is one of the most intriguing in the world. They are pointedly elongated, pun intended. For a long time it was believed that the purpose of the point was to give the egg a tighter turning circle if it was to roll. The theory being that oval shapes turn tighter than strictly circular ones do. And and indeed, they do. And in an environment where you're hanging out on a narrow ledge, it would be advantageous for an egg to turn tightly so as to avoid rolling over an edge than if it was a circular egg and just went straight into the ocean. And it was a good theory, it made good sense. But it is generally believed to not be the reason for why the eggs are so shaped now. And there are new theories that say that the egg is more streamlined and gives the mother a better flying advantage before the egg is laid. And there is another theory that the sharp point allows the opposite end of the egg to keep elevated off the ground and so as to allow the developing chick the ability to breathe easier. Again, see our egg episode for more details. And to be fair, murs do live in filthy conditions and their eggs are generally caked in poo but the rounded end that is elevated from the ground stays relatively clean, therefore allowing the chick to breathe through the unclogged pores. Their eggs are also beautiful. They have intricate blue patterns, which is believed to help the parents identify their egg among the crowd of communal nesters. And both these traits, the pointiness and the coloration, do support these theories of messy communal nesting. Because if we look at the puffin, we see something very different. You see puffins nest in burrows or in crevices and have quite a bit of separation between their nests. And instead of seeing bright blue elongated eggs, we see more rounded white eggs, suggesting that those traits aren't necessary for the puffin. And we should also note that puffins do tend to keep their nests in a much cleaner state than the filthy, filthy murs. So it would seem that potentially different nesting practices has resulted in different shaped and coloured eggs. 
But the orc, with maybe the strangest nesting practices of all, are the marbled merlets. These are one of the few orcs to nest in trees. They favour mature or old-growth forest stands that can be up to 50 miles inland. That's 80 kilometres. Of course, to say they make a nest is a little generous. They don't so much as build a nest as they do bunker down in the moss-lined branches and forks of old trees and trust to the giant ancient limbs' great girth to keep their eggs safe. Their nesting practice is so unusual for their family that for nearly a century, people had no idea where the marbled mulets even laid their eggs. Their breeding practices were a complete enigma, because, you know, let's face it, no one thought they were flying nearly 100 kilometers inland when every other member of their family rarely leaves sight of water. It wasn't until 1974 when their nests in the top of Douglas firs were even found, which gave them the rather unique distinction of being the last bird in the United States to have its nesting practices discovered. Sadly, the old-growth forests that the marbled merlets favour are also a favourite of the logging companies. As you might imagine, they haven't fared too well with these overlapping interests, and merlet nesting space has been on a decline for decades, and their population has followed that trend. Which, you know, is a very typical story for the birds of the world today. But maybe we should try to end our episode on a more positive note with another drab merlet, the ancient merlet. Now you might be wondering what makes them ancient, but the name came about because some people thought the pattern of grey feathers on their back somehow resembled a shawl that an old person might wear. So I guess that's as good a reason for naming a bird something as any. These merlets have a more traditional nesting habit. They make little burrows on islands and lay their eggs there. But these merlets... Let me tell you, they do not like land, and they are maybe the most wary of all the orcs. They only arrive and depart from their nesting site under the cover of night, and supposedly to hoodwink any prospective predators. And even after their eggs hatch, they don't want to stick around. After only three days, their chicks leave the nest. The parents call to their nestlings, encouraging them to leave the nest and run down to the shore. Again, this all happens under the cover of night. The poor little newborn babies have to make a dash for the waves and then swim out to the sea to find their parents. They locate each other based on the unique call their parents make. Once they are safe on the waves, the little family will stay in the colony but swim out to sea where the parents will feed the babies as they bob about on the surface until they are old enough to fly. By some estimation, this behaviour makes the ancient merlet the bird that spends the least amount of time on land of any bird. Yeah, I feel like if they didn't have a need to find somewhere solid to put their egg, they would give up on land altogether and live life on the high seas. And I feel like this is quite a pretty picture of a nice little family of little merlets bobbing about on the sea, looking after their babies. And it's much nicer than what the puffins do. They abruptly abandon their chicks while they're still in the nest. The poor little baby puffin lives by itself off its own fat reserves for a week before it is old enough to fledge, jump into the ocean, and make its way in life alone. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I guess you, you've just got to dive right into the deep end. Yeah, at any rate, I hope you've enjoyed this shorter episode and our little look at the orc family. They are some strange birds, and I love them. 
Yeah, I hope you'll come back next time because we will be looking at cosmopolitan birds. Who are the Cosmo birds? What is a Cosmo bird and why do I keep saying Cosmo? You'll have to tune in next time to hear all about it. But now, if you want some more bird action, I've got some good news. And this time, it is a little something different for you on our bonus podcast. Listeners may remember from a few episodes ago that Mr. Richard Clark put together an extended bird-themed track. Well, if you would like to check it out, it's available, and it's strange, and it's weird, and it's kooky, but it's worth a listen. And for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. And if you're feeling especially generous and would like to make a larger contribution, then you too can receive a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Ho, Dar Fuller, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And if you would like to receive a free bird in your inbox each week, you can drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I will add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list, where you will receive a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again soon. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. So I didn't really have a place to put this in the main episode, but I couldn't talk about orcs without mentioning the Greenland delicacy, kvak. I think I'm saying that right. This is a rather peculiar dish made up of little orcs. Now, the little orc is maybe the cutest of all the orcs. They're about half the size of a puffin, coming in at just 20 centimetres in length. They're a beautiful little black and white bird. But what the people of Greenland like to do is they like to take up to 500 whole orcs, beaks, skin, feathers and all, and pack them inside the skin of a seal. This seal is then sewed up, it is sealed with fat to repel flies, and then it is hidden under a heap of stones with a large rock placed on top of it to keep the air out. It is then left for three months, allowing the birds to ferment, and then it is dug up and eaten during the Arctic winter as a special delicacy, usually on birthdays, anniversaries, or other special occasions. Ah, so if you're ever in Greenland, yeah, and you're feeling bold, check that one out. I, I, I don't think I will, though.